Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the changes. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Hamilton. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jan. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. So you've been really busy on the speaking circuit. I've seen you <laughs> in London. I've seen you in the Amsterdam. And I think uh, we are both doing serverless uh, summit uh, pretty soon. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've been doing quite a lot in the last three months or so. Everything kind of all came at once. Um, and it's been really exciting, to be honest. Yeah, I've uh, saw your talk at uh, the Go to EDA event uh, about the advanced uh, event-driven patterns at uh, Lego, which I thought was really well done, really interesting stuff. And also, I noticed that some of the things that uh, you talked about uh, have been quite different from last time I had uh, Sheen uh, on, the, on, the, on the podcast to talk about how you guys are set up in Lego. So maybe that's one of the things we can talk about later on to see, you know, two years on, uh, what does the Lego stack look like compared to maybe, you know, when I spoke with Sheen two years ago. Uh, but before we get to that, can you maybe just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your experience going into serverless and working at Theodo and then now Lego? Yeah, definitely. So uh, as we know, I'm Sarah and I started out, I would say the whole journey started when I was doing my physics degree. Uh, I was at Durham University and I did a master's there and I was going to continue on to do a PhD at the time. Um, this was all before COVID hit and it was around, it, it was classed as condensed matter physics, which is more hardware kind of dealing with magnetic memory and how we could improve that. Um, so I was on to do that, but I kind of realized that the achievements were very few and far between with a PhD. So every, you know, it was with research, it's more failures than successes. And I think I found it a little bit slow going in that sense. So I decided to not do that and look for a job. And I wanted uh, something fulfilling. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I applied to a few jobs, uh, mainly in uh, some kind of coding, which I was familiar with because I had done Python at university, um, but more in a mathematical sense. So I didn't know an awful lot about web development. But anyway, I, I got the job and it was a very steep learning curve for the first six months uh, because I was on a client project doing a lot of front end, um, just trying my best to learn as much as possible. It was really difficult. Uh, but I would say that after six months to a year, everything really started to click and I was really enjoying myself by about a year in and realized that I, I loved it really. Um, what, what a great place to be. So after approximately a year or so, um, Ben Ellaby, who is probably the first person who inspired me in serverless, he asked me to join his kind of new startup, which was still within the Theodo group. Um, to specialize in serverless and I jumped at the chance because serverless was the only technology back-end technology that I'd been working with and that was great we um, grew to around six people while I was there um, worked on quite a few serverless projects um, and then I decided to move to the Lego group to work on something more in production higher scale uh, because at the time in the web consultancy we would do working a bit more with startups so a lot of greenfield projects which i do miss uh quite a lot actually um and but here i am i'm at the lego group it's a really cool place to be and uh loving the work that we're doing 
Yeah, I've uh, had uh, Ben on this podcast before as well, and I've uh, spoken with Ben quite a few times, uh, both when he was at the Theodore and now with his uh, with Alios. And I guess uh, with uh, Theodore uh, and well, you know, you guys were working mostly with I think small to ent- to medium enterprises, and I guess Lego now is a much bigger company. Uh, have you sort of seen any sort of noticeable differences in terms of culture, in terms of uh, you know things that you've learned in di- different places? Because I know switching. From you know, enterprise to startup or vice versa, the cultural difference is very different. How you approach things are very different, and also in terms of things like the pace of work and all that. How you find that the transition so far? Yeah, uh, there, there's been a big learning curve as well, which I, I'm trying to see as a really great thing because it's getting me used to kind of do I enjoy working in the startup culture or more? I wouldn't. I don't like to say that Lego's corporate because I still think it has that very engineering kind of vibe. Um, but there's a few learning curves in terms of technology, I would say is a big one at the startups. I was kind of implementing perfect serverless where everything worked and scaled really well um, and didn't really have to think about some of the shortcomings of an older system. Um, at the Lego Group, obviously, it's a constant evolving website that's been around for many years. And there's many challenges that you have to face in terms of I'm currently working on a migration project in production. And there's a lot of challenges from unpicking older technology to move it towards newer technology. And it's a a much slower process, but I think it's a really valuable thing to learn because it feels like it's this is real life. Um, So that's a big thing. Um, I would say kind of the culture. Yes, at the startups, I would say uh, I have a very direct approach. And I think that that went down really well in startup culture where everyone's very tight and understands you really well um when you move to a bigger company and you have to deal with stakeholders and people who um you don't communicate with as much you have to soften your tone a little bit and kind of uh, put around a bit of fluff around the edges so that's a big part of learning for me how to communicate in a more corporate uh, way and also, I guess that you have to work with different type of uh, personas, like you mentioned. So sometimes you have to be a little more gentle, sometimes uh, be more direct. Uh, but also, I guess, in terms of working with different stakeholders who may not be as uh, technically minded as engineers, which also have, I guess, in that case, you have to learn to communicate effectively to people who you know, don't care about serverless. They don't care about, you know, AWS, they don't care about cloud. They just care about, okay, I want to get this thing you know, out the door to the customers and, uh, and tell me why I should care about whatever it is that you're trying to say to me. Uh, have you yeah. sort of le- had to learn about the uh, you know, communication skills uh, around how to communicate with uh, non-technical users? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's always been a strong point for me to be able to explain technical issues to non-technical people. Uh, That's not something that I find too much of a a problem. I guess within a bigger organization, it's more so how do you actually open a dialogue with people who are making the decisions? Because where they are in the company can be so far from where you sit. And often there is more hierarchy, so you might need to deliver that message through your engineering manager, because right now I am an engineer. Um, I'm not in a management role. And I guess, uh, are you working in the Shins uh, group, as broadly speaking? Broadly speaking, yes. We're in the same uh, team in terms of engineering, and it's called Marketing Channels Technology. He works uh, mainly in the loyalty squad, but has a more global overview because he's an engineering manager. I sit within a marketing team. So we're dealing with, firstly, this migration of going from an older uh, marketing platform to a newer marketing platform. 
but also uh, dealing with kind of how we use data uh, that users have from the front end in order to manipulate it to decide what emails a user should receive. I'm actually uh, moving teams internally at the end of the month to go into more data streaming roles, so how we funnel that data and then use it um, for whoever needs that data. So it's something that I'm quite interested in. So, And it's also, I think, there'll be more learning for me to do as well because, and it's not even, some of it's not even serverless, it'll be more browser-based um, in terms of cookies and how we use those. And I think my mission is just to continue to learn really. Okay, so I guess then maybe this is a good point for us to catch up on the what does the sort of serverless uh, stack or the way you guys are organized uh, in 2022 compared to when I last uh, spoke with Sheen. Because um, I guess back then, Lego had the uh, Mon repo, and uh, remember talking to Sheen, and they had this, uh, I think, uh, things uh, set up whereby they got a Mon repo of these different services, and they were using, I think, Learner at the time to work out uh, when a commit was pushed which folder was impacted based on the references so that they know which services need to be packaged and deployed so that you only deploy the services that has been changed by the commit. And from your talk at Go to EDA, it sounds like uh, Lego has at least uh, Shin's, uh, so, you know, your broader engineering team has moved away from this mon repo approach and having, I guess, multiple repos, maybe one per business area, uh, as the team has grew. So maybe can you explain uh, you know, how this is uh, set up in terms of you know how many teams you guys have and. Uh, do you all work on your own repos or is there some kind of grouping of uh, different services into maybe not mon repos, but the kind of group of repos for a particular business area? Yeah, I actually listened to uh, the Sheen and Nicole podcast the other day to prepare for this to see how things have changed. And I was amazed to see that at the time when they were speaking just two years ago, um, they had, I think they said six feature teams. And now I think that we're, we're on maybe over 25. It's really hard to keep track. So things really have moved and it's pretty incredible to see. Uh, I've been at the Lego Group for nearly a year now. And so I don't know exactly how things worked back then other than what they've said on the podcast. Um, but right now we are in a state where a lot of the new teams, they set up their cloud accounts and they have their own repo. So I would say it's it's kind of a domain. So not a business business area just because uh, so I sit I would say my business area is marketing and there's several teams under that and each one in theory would have their own repo um, and they're all decoupled in reality we have some teams that have got that way we do still have a mono repo uh, which has services within it so I, I never know how to classify these things but the back-end services I would say whilst they're in a mono repo they're kind of decoupled they can be deployed separately uh, they're not intertwined the front end is much more uh, mono repo style I would say um, the general theme is we're trying to move towards every team has their own repo and their own cloud account. It's just a process that I think we're undergoing and some teams have achieved it. Some teams have other priorities at the moment. Uh, right now, I am working in the monorepo, um, but the general the general theme when we set up our team, we did set up this monorepo this uh, repo for our own team, we just need to move everything out of it. And that's going to be a task in itself to move it into our repo. But the general ideas are there and we are moving towards it. 
Okay, so I guess uh, in that case, uh, you've got a repo for your team, and I guess you've got multiple services still within the same repo. And are you still, are you still using something like Learner or NX to work out when someone does a commit, uh, push a commit, which of the services has been changed and therefore need to be redeployed? I'm going to say we don't use that because I, I don't I haven't heard of this system. So <laughs> no, I, I don't think we do. Um, to me, everything's kind of normal <laughs> in a sense. I, I, yeah, I'm not too sure about that. Okay, so if you were to push a commit to one of the services, does it trigger deployment for all the services in that same repo? No, so you would if you push a commit for your uh, service, then it will only deploy that individual service. Um, so all the backend services within a repo are separately deployable. Okay, so they must still have some kind of mechanism to detect uh, which services has actually been updated by the by the push, so that uh, they know which ones to deploy. Yes, I believe it's done through GitHub Actions, but yeah, you might want to remove this bit from the video because I'm not that sure. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, okay, and uh, what about in terms of uh, the actual tech stack itself? And uh, I guess it's still very much a JavaScript uh, everywhere. Um, do you guys have uh, different languages now? You've got you know, 20-something teams, which is uh, a lot easier for you to have, say, you know, one team that want to use uh, Python because everyone in that team is uh, familiar with that. Um, or, or is everyone still so consensus, consensus around uh, using JavaScript for all the backend services? Yeah, so in the, the teams that I tend to work with, we're all in JavaScript slash moving to TypeScript. That's kind of an, also a theme that we're moving along with. Uh, we're trying to get TypeScript 100% across those JavaScript services. Um, but I do also work with teams who are maybe a bit more distant from me who are working in C Sharp, um, which is great because it means that their team, that's what their team has skills in. Maybe that's what is appropriate for the uh, type of service that they dealing with. Um, difficulties from that kind of come when if different teams have different timelines and we need something done now, often I'll offer to kind of come into the team and say, can I do the work? And then that becomes a bit problematic because I do not know C sharp and it's going to be a learning curve. But overall, I think it's a good thing because in theory, I shouldn't need to go and ask to do some work in their repo. Um, so I think it's about smoothing out those processes. But Yes, we do have different languages. And from what I've seen, it's Python, C Sharp, and JavaScript. But primarily, uh, we're all kind of in JavaScript in my area. OK, so I guess maybe if we talk about uh, some of the migration work you're doing right now, because uh, one of the interesting things when it comes to migration, especially when you're moving from, say, uh, containers or EC2 to Lambda, uh, it does obviously quite a bit of rewrite in terms of uh, you know, how you structure your application and all that. But if you're going to be switching data as well, I think that is where it gets a bit tricky in terms of that migration without downtime. Uh, has, you know, have you guys uh, got to that point yet where you've thought about uh, you know, the different uh, steps you're going to do this so that uh, you don't have to introduce any downtime when you switch from the current system to your new system using, I'm guessing, DynamoDB or something like that? Yeah, so at the moment, the process is we're actually switching from a third party to another third party. And then eventually, and that's where we store this data. And eventually, another team is working on switching out that new third party for DynamoDB, which is going to be the ideal situation because the third party does have limitations that we're dealing around. And I don't know all of the decisions that went into why we use the third party, but that's the situation that I landed in and that's what we were doing. 
Luckily, we have managed to break the migration down into steps such that we've gone live um, with different parts at a time. So right now we're running these two systems in parallel so that we can flick the switch as we go along, uh, which is great because at the beginning we were worried that it was just going to be one big bang release and it's quite a crucial system for us. Uh, but we have successfully gone live with some of the different areas. So we're, we're getting towards the end of the migration, which will be great when we get to switch off the old system. Um, there's been a lot of challenges along the way, as you can imagine. Uh, things that crop up, it's really hard to plan sprints because things just kind of crop up and you just have to deal with them as they come. Uh, unknowns that you, yeah, that you basically didn't know about that come in. Uh, but it has been really valuable to learn this sort of thing because I imagine it's how every kind of migration project goes. Yeah, yeah, you know, you can. There's always going to be uh, some things that you don't know until you, you know start digging into that bit of the project, and then the halfway you realize uh, you know, there's some problem you guys just haven't thought about at all. But I guess that's what agile is supposed to do, right? Give you that ability to react to changes uh, uh, quickly without having to. Know, focus so much on the, you know, this is the plan we can just do it uh, without thinking about all the things we're going to learn along the way and how we should uh, pivot and uh, redirect our efforts so in terms of the stuff that, that you were doing before you joined the lego uh, i know theodos uh, has some really interesting projects and you mentioned that you have some fully serverless projects that you can just go be crazy in terms of uh, you know all the fancy tools uh, we can you know we're building something from scratch so there's no legacy systems you have to worry about are there some project that uh, you know, comes to mind as, as being particularly interesting or challenging? Yeah, I think um, there was a platform that Ben may have spoken about before. It was a video conferencing platform and it was kind of, well, there were two projects actually. There, there was a gaming platform, which I was really new to tech and it was a bit of a struggle, but now I appreciate just how cool it was. There were a lot of step functions and all serverless, very cool. But I think I was still learning a lot then. But my kind of love for serverless came from when I went onto this video conferencing app about a year in. And um, that was also a migration project from an older system that didn't scale uh, to a new one. But I was mainly working on the greenfield work that it was going to be switched over to. And we were essentially just using all the new cool tech. So we had like micro front ends because we were switching out the the legacy front end for different new front ends so that we could release really quickly and incrementally. Um, we had step functions, event bridge, you name it, we had it. And that was when I built my um, chat application with AppSync and kind of started to understand GraphQL as well and how powerful it is. Um, and I remember doing a hackathon where just for, for fun, the company allowed us to, for three days, do basically whatever we want. And I built the, um, you know, emoji react on messages um, in that hackathon just with AppSync and DynamoDB. And it was so quick. And I just kind of realized the power of serverless and how quickly you can build things. So, yeah, that was awesome. And I really enjoyed that project. And that's probably where I started to gain momentum. But that's great. Uh, yeah, AppSync is, uh, is, is by far my um, favorite uh, services on AWS uh, right now. Uh, it just gives you so much productivity. Okay, so that's, uh, that's interesting. And uh, I want to also pivot a little bit as well, uh, because uh, you are part of the 
community builders uh, program at uh, AWS, uh, and it's a program that uh, I've, I've, I've sort of heard about for a while, and I've known quite a few people in the community builders program, and a few of my students have asked me about, you know, is this something that's worth uh, applying to? What's the criteria for you know, getting into the program? And also, you know, what's, what do you actually get as part of the community builders program? So, you know, seeing as you've been there for a while, uh, maybe can you talk through maybe the process of applying? Uh, what do you need to do? And also, uh, what has been some of the biggest benefits for you as part of the community builders uh, program? Yes, I applied over two years ago um, and I remember the criteria was you needed to have written at least two pieces of content or any kind of content, not necessarily written. It could be videos, it could be anything that contributes to the community. So you'd provide a couple of links to those and I think I had to write why I'd like to be part of the uh, the journey. And I don't remember exactly what I wrote, to be honest, uh, but obviously I got in. I don't think I actually knew exactly what it meant at the time. I think it was something that I was encouraged to apply to and it worked out for me. Um, for me, I would say the benefits uh, may be different to others. I would say it provides me with a lot of motivation. I think for me to continue learning, it's nice to have something to aim for that's not necessarily just completely linked to the company that you work with. So it's more of a personal achievement. Um, in terms of especially the certifications as well, I love that style of learning um, and it allows you, you know, what you're working on within your company might be quite niche. And so it just gives you a much broader understanding of what's out there. For others, it may be that the benefits come from communicating with other community builders. We have a Slack channel where you can post questions and post content. Um, I don't use that quite as much. I think I tend to resort to Twitter for my information and questions. Um, but I think there's many different benefits. And of course, you do get the, the free swag. Uh, and I got that at the first year and the second year, uh, which is always really exciting. Um, so that's a big part of it. Yeah, and I guess you get uh, some briefing sessions uh, from AWS as well uh, in terms of uh, some of the newer uh, features that they just announced. Uh, and uh, I think I saw there's, um, uh, there's, there's some stuff happening around the reInvent. I think uh, you guys may be getting some uh, heads up about some services as well because, I, because I, I think you also have to sign an NDA as part of the program, if I, if I recall. Yeah, that's true. I think that we uh, are allowed some early access to ideas that are coming about. And then I think that one step ahead of that is heroes maybe get even more uh, more access to, to that. So yeah, we do have to sign the NDA. I haven't been keeping up with the Slack channel so much recently, but in terms of uh, reInvent, I know that we are offered maybe half the cost off the, uh, the total cost. And we're informed about things like I know a few people who have gotten into reInvent fully paid uh, through being from a diverse background. So we're informed about all those sorts of things. So I think in that sense, there are a lot of benefits and generally contacts within AWS are always handy to have when you're working with those services. Um, so it, yeah, it's a nice community. And I think that's a big part of why I enjoy being in the serverless community, not because of just the technology, it's the people who you meet. Um, everyone's really passionate, so that's cool. Okay, speaking about the community, um, I remember you know at the uh, GoTo EDA, obviously there was quite a well attended event. There's a lot of people there, and your session was very well attended. And I had some questions, I guess, uh, about the the, the 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 talk that you gave um, because you touched on some of the uh, integration patterns that you can use uh, uh, step functions to integrate with other uh, services, either in your own domain, your other microservices, or third-party systems. 
And one of the things that uh, I'm quite interested to find out in terms of uh, you know, how you approach this in terms of uh, the, um, the sort of testing side of things, because that's always been a bit tricky uh, with step functions. They introduced the step functions local a while back, uh, but you no, know, so you can set mock responses and all that. But that is still just for local testing. Have you mm. guys? Uh, is is that what you guys are doing for testing these uh, step functions, or are you doing something more sort of end to end, triggering events uh, that triggers your step function, and uh, you know, with the base on a payload, it does different things. And uh, how do you approach testing? So, I I don't know. What- why but i tend to stay away from these like local testing packages and maybe that's really bad of me maybe they're really useful but for some reason i've just never quite vibed with them um so generally it is testing on kind of the real architecture and with step functions yes it has been tricky um that kind of started when i was at alios we had a open source repo called serverless test tools and I worked on, I think, S3, Dynamo, um, and EventBridge testing. But Step Functions was always a bit of a, oh, how, how are we going to do this? And I knew that Joel Hamilton, who now works at Alios, worked on the serverless test tools for Step Functions. And I knew that what he did um, was essentially to trigger a Step Function in the test and check for its output. I don't know too many more details than that, but I think we're doing a similar thing at the Lego group. Um, I've seen one of my colleagues implement tests where essentially he is calling the the step function and then checking to see what the outcome of the uh, step function was. Um, In terms of testing what happened in between in the step function, I'm not exactly sure. I think we decided to do more of a, I don't know whether you'd call it an end-to-end test or an integration test, but we would start at the beginning and check the different flows that we went down. So if the payload was this, did we get the right output based on the different journeys it can take? Um, I don't think I personally have done anything where I've tested the individual uh, steps but but how about you? I was wondering, because I know you're quite into step functions. Um, do you have any testing tips for serverless uh, step functions? Yeah, I think I've used a different techniques in the past. Uh, step functions local is one of them, because uh, mostly because some of the branching conditions that doesn't based on your payload, based on response from third-party APIs. I think that's where uh, being able to use uh, mock responses with a step functions uh, local becomes quite useful because it's really hard to get, say, Twilio to send uh, a particular response or a particular error uh, or to test some of the uh, uh, things like timeouts, um, things like that, which, uh, again, you know, if you're building something, I think well said, the, the zone, uh, we were using step functions a lot in the sort of payment processing side of things, you know, getting credit card uh, payments back and all of that. And we want that process to be really robust and easy to debug so we decided to go with uh, step functions uh, but then trying to get the credit card payment systems to uh, to throw errors uh, it's just not easy and to, uh, to test those scenarios so we ended up writing a mock service that uh, we can say um, when you call this endpoint with this payload respond with you know, 502 uh, or respond with a particular payload essentially just like a mock service um, so that we can test the step functions end to end but have it hit that uh, mock endpoint as opposed to Twilio's real endpoint. 
And, and then we can use that to trigger the step function to go down a particular path. And then we can test, okay, at the end of that, does it do the right thing? Uh, and then we can test that, you know, um, how are we handling timeouts? If that service takes uh, more than, I don't know, 10 seconds to respond, how do we then handle that you know, timeout scenario? Which uh, it's, uh, it's, it's not great because we have to basically maintain this uh, mock service uh, ourselves. And there's also a lot of, um, I guess, uh, hackery that we have to put into the uh, step function definition itself so that we can swap out the, U, uh, the URL that it uses to call this the third party integration. So there's a lot of uh, things that you have to kind of do to make this kind of testing work. Um, so you just, just wasn't very satisfying, uh, which is why I think uh, step function is local, even though like you, I don't use the local simulators uh, just uh, at all. Um, I try local stack multiple times. Uh, they o always get burned. Um, they always break. And then it takes you know, a week to figure out what's going on. And eventually just reinstall fresh. Um, and then it's spend a, you know, a couple of hours to just configure it to get it to work again. Um, but yeah, local simulators, I've never had a good experience with them. Uh, but uh, I think uh, step functions local kind of just kind of pushes you into that direction because the the, the alternative is, or the, the the alternatives all seem to be worse. Um, <laughs> so unfortunately, yeah. uh, with income step functions, they're just uh, they're just a bunch of limitations that make it difficult to uh, to to, you know, to to write tests easily. Yeah, I'd definitely like to, to give that a go then now that I've got a recommendation for it. Um, but I agree with the local testing packages. I've struggled with it. And to be quite honest, I know that uh, deploying things often takes a lot of time with the local testing. But sometimes I kind of like that time. It gives me a bit of time to think uh, in between, um, just makes things a bit more slow and steady. Yeah, I mean, usually I don't mind uh, waiting a minute, kind of a couple of minutes uh, for the deployment and then run some end-to-end tests. Uh, but when I'm just making small code changes, I do still like to be able to iterate things uh, quickly. Um, so I do still write a lot of uh, you know, local tests that runs the code, but not using any simulators or any mocks or local um, uh, local sort of simulators for AWS services. Uh, a lot of time I write tests that would just run my code locally, but talk to the real DynamDB table and uh, I can just so 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 my you know, feedback loop is still quite fast for those tests but then yeah. I will still have the end-to-end test make sure everything's working so you know writing different layers of tests uh, some targeting just your domain logic some targeting just you know how you're calling DynamDB or other services but then you know I always have end-to-end tests that test the whole thing anyway because that's the main that's the most important thing I think um, yeah. you know having the customer basically simulating a, a customer user case uh, make sure that uh, that's actually working and I think the official line from AWS is also to test in the cloud but uh, I think for a lot of developers uh, it's, it's hard to give up that uh, feedback loop um, speed and, and they shouldn't have to I think in the ideal world they should, uh, you know, should be able to have both uh, have a fast feedback loop and have you know, something that uh, works really well and that's, I can see AWS has been doing some things like, you know, Sam has got the sync support so that you can make changes and it gets deployed via um, the Lambda API as opposed to CloudFormation so that uh, you can hopefully improve that the deployment time so that you can rely more on testing the cloud. But uh, you know, that's one specific tool. A lot of people use uh, CDK or use a server framework or something else. So, you know, we need to have a meet, uh, something that supports a broader range of uh, use cases.
Yeah, for sure. I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out because I know it's a pain point for quite a lot of people. And speaking on that topic, I would say what I'm trying to get better at is making sure that I've written all of my Lambda unit tests up front. So using Jest, we I'll always write the tests so that, I mean, usually the bulk of my errors comes from Lambda logic where I've just messed up. So making sure that I've written all those tests and then you don't have to go through deploying every time you make a little incremental change to the Lambda to get to where you want to be. Uh, but definitely in terms of plugging in new um, services, I'll always deploy, really. That's kind of yeah, how I go about it, or I'm trying to go about it. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good strategy. That's a, you know, that's the, pretty much the same strategy that I use as well, uh, even though I'm probably not as, uh, uh, as, um, as disciplined as I should be when it comes to writing tests first. So I guess that's all the questions that I've had in mind. Uh, is there anything else that you want to sort of touch on before we go? Uh, any sort of things you're going to be you know, doing um, soon? I guess you know, that's the serverless summit. Uh, anything else that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I suppose I'm excited for the serverless summit. It'll be my first online conference in quite a while, which is probably a good thing that I've been doing some in, in person, uh, which has been really fun. Um, but I think over Christmas, I'm taking a little bit more of a what's the word, kind of a backseat approach in terms of I am going to be working on my AWS Professional Solutions Architect uh, certification, which I've just been struggling to get the time to do, although I've had a few free weekends recently. Um, and I think it's just the style of learning that I really enjoy. Um, but I know myself and a colleague at the Lego Group were going to apply for a conference next April. Um, I'm sure that I'll be doing some more things in the meantime because that sounds like quite a long time away and I want to keep up with kind of my speaking skills. Um, but right now I'm excited to get on with this certification, hopefully pass it. Um, it's the one that I've been working towards for a while. So that, yeah, that's mainly what I'm doing at the moment and just kind of getting on with uh, the work that I'm doing at the Lego Group. Sounds fantastic. Uh, that's actually one of the more difficult certification exams, I think, uh, on AWS. And the Solution Architect, the professional, I think that's one of the most most difficult one, I think, from what other people have told me. Um, I haven't done that myself either. But yeah, no, good luck. Hopefully you'll pass and, uh, and uh, hopefully see you, uh, you know, at the other events uh, next year. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Take it easy. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.